Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. Stocks don't go up all the time. We don't know when they're coming, but history tells us that periodic sell-offs are inevitable. What are we to do with that information? Well, many investors turn to uncorrelated non-stock assets in their portfolio to see them through those times. Traditionally, those are things like gold, but more recently, we've got new asset classes like cryptocurrencies and even collectibles uh, that folks are investing in. This week, we'll be discussing the role that all these asset classes can play in a portfolio. And joining me to help me do it are my good friends, Anand Chakavalu and Jason Hall. Thanks for joining me, guys. Absolutely. This is fantastic. Thanks, Nick. Anand, this is the first time I've had you on the podcast. Jason, long-time guest. Feels like every other week I'm on here uh, talking to you. I want to, Anand, uh, before we get into this kind of discussion, can you just introduce yourself uh, to the listeners? What do you do at The Fool? How long have you been here? Uh, That sort of thing. Sure. Before I've been at The Fool for 16 years, uh, mostly in the editorial department. Uh, Before that, I was a subscriber um, and doing financey things. That's what I first did at The Fool. Uh, doing a lot of Excel models and things like that, but since then, been in the uh, some form of the editorial department. Yeah, Anand was my um, was my boss when I first started uh, at the Motley Fool. So you know, if you think if you think I'm smart, Anand was was smart enough to hire me. So 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 uh, so, so there you go. Um, so when we get into some of the, these alternative assets, I want to start out talking about gold. This is kind of the granddaddy of them all. When you look at the history of gold, pretty much as long as there have, there has been history, there has been gold involved in, in human civilization uh, in some way. Just just high level. Why is gold valuable? Well, it's interesting, right? Because you have this you have this asset that um, there's a lot of it, but there's not too much of it. Um, and it still looks like gold a year later. It doesn't rust. It doesn't corrode. So, and it's shiny, right? So it's something that um, has value to people looking for nice things. So again, this is thinking historically about it. So it has all of these little things about it that make it handy. Also, the fact that it's malleable, the fact that it's easy to make into small sizes uh, consistently versus something like iron, Um and it's more rare than bronze, right? And so, so there's all of these little things that kind of apply that, in short, make gold gold. Plus the big one, right? I think we we learned is um, money something everybody else thinks is money. So, <laughs> and it's the same way with something of value. And there's enough people that think gold is a valuable asset that tends to make it valuable. Yeah, we were talking before the show. I mean, fundamentally, uh, what's what's interesting about about the history of gold is that the gold was in use for a long time in jewelry and art and those sorts of things before it before it ever became um, a currency. So fundamentally, we like gold because we think it looks cool. Like we've just proved that over time, people think gold looks cool. We were talking before uh, before we recorded the podcast about you know if I had the means and you know maybe I'll never have the means and I'd, I'd need a lot of means before I was making these types of purchases. But if I had the means, I think it would be cool to say own a gold bar. There aren't a lot of things like that that I think, hey, it would be cool to just have it. I mean, gold kind of has that that quality. And then over time, obviously, gold evolved into uh, you know the gold standard, backed by backed by governments, became uh, you know currency. Um, 
it's changed somewhat as since the 1970s when the U.S. came off the gold standard. There, there are no longer any countries in the world uh, that, that follow the gold standard, but still ha- carries this role a- as a store of value. We still have this feeling around us um, of, of the value of gold. And one of the primary uses of gold today still remains jewelry and, and then um, investment uses. So kind of kind of to zoom out, how big is the gold market today? It's about uh, $11 trillion, um, to put that in context. Um, the, um, you know, we'll talk about Bitcoin later. That's approaching 1 trillion. So a lot of the bull case there is, Hey, gold's at 11 trillion. Bitcoin's at 1 trillion. Yeah, absolutely. And so you look at the, look at the use case. So it's like 48% jewelry, about a third, uh, kind of investment uses, central banks using 15% and then about seven and a half percent, um, uh, from, from technology. This is, this is from, I believe the, the gold center. Um, and so that technology is like your iPhone, um, Things like that. So when you talk about the, the role of of gold as a portfolio, you know, in your portfolio, obviously it has this value as traditionally held value. Why would someone own it in a portfolio? So, so the idea, right? This is this. It's that that uncorrelated asset, right? So typically, you think about building out a portfolio, and if you invest all in equities, you're you're married to the equity cycle, right? And let's let's not beat around the bush. If you if you started investing in equities in two thousand nine. It's worked out incredibly well. You know, there's no doubt about it. If you start investing in 2002, 2003, 2004, it's worked out incredibly well, right? Um, but the flip side of that is, let's say you were going to retire, let's say March of 2020, and you were exposed entirely to equities at the beginning of the year, you may have had to delay your retirement. Or, and I guarantee this happened, there were people that sold a lot of equities at the bottom in March of 2020, after a 35% haircut, because they needed that cash to retire and they moved quickly, right? So when you invest in asset classes that don't move in lockstep with equities, with stocks, you reduce your exposure to those downturn cyclical quick hit events that can destroy value in a very, very, very quick short period of time. So that's part of it, right? That's part of it. There are other people that also think about something like gold and say, well, inflation is going to be rampant, right? Interest rates are in existence. So this is an asset class that's going to become more appealing to a larger base of investors, people that are concerned about inflation and they don't want to be in cash, people that are looking for some sort of return. You're not getting that in bonds. We're afraid equities are overvalued. So what about gold, right? So as a, as a store of value. So those are kind of the thought processes uh, behind behind gold as, a, as an uncorrelated asset. Right, exactly. So inflation, if you think about that, like the dollars you hold becoming less valuable over time, you put those dollars in gold. In theory, it, it stores that value. You don't lose that value uh, to inflation. And you see historically in times where, where inflation is super high, the 1970s uh, in particular, gold has performed pretty well. So we talk about this role for gold as kind of a, a diversifier. When we think about you know gold as an investment, do you think of gold as an investment that you should think about that's going to you know return uh, you know like stocks do, or, or more as something that is part of your portfolio construction that reduces volatility? Per- personally, I think it's yeah reduces volatility if it, if it makes you feel comfortable owning a little gold. Um, the thing that dissuaded me over you know this is years ago, Jeremy Siegel um, ran the numbers from like like the 1800s or something, you had gold bonds and stock and gold was basically just keeping up with inflation. If I 
remember the numbers right. And then, you know, stock, you know, bonds do all right. And then stocks do amazing. So, you know, as a store of value, sure. As, as a real investment, that's, that's truly going to increase your earnings power. I, I, I just don't see the case there over a long period of time. Yeah. To, to me, it gets back to the, the numbers you were talking about, Nick, at the end of the day, when you're talking about any asset class that its utility value is very clearly framed and 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 limited. So you think about what was the percentage of gold that has commercial use. So you think about retail. So you think about for making jewelry, so like maybe half, less than half, right around half somewhere in there, about half. And then you have less than ten percent that has industrial value. So you think about use it in electronics um, and that sort of thing. Um, so you end up with this really small market movability, right? Where demand can drive the value and increase the price over time. And, and particularly when, when you have healthy market dynamics, when the economy is going well, when stocks are, are businesses are growing their, their earnings, you know, all of those positive things for equities, it doesn't take a very large amount of, of investor interest to, to wildly affect the value of gold. Right. And I think that's the problem. There's no sustained, predictable thing that's going to generally drive its value higher and higher over time. Yeah, I think the, the quote that's always resonated for me is there's a Warren Buffett quote. I may, I may be paraphrasing it, but something to the extent that, that buying gold is like going long fear. So over the long term, you're going you're to hold a certain amount of gold and gold today is going to be gold 20 years from now if you have a gold bar. But in the short term, because of because there is a lot of kind of narrative driven, if there's a lot of fear, you want this protection from inflation, a lot of people uh, rush into gold. You know, if you're trying to, you know, invest on it as something that, that's less than a store of value and more that, you know, we're going to see the movements in the market, you really need to be betting that, that people are going to be much more uncertain six months from now about what's going on in the financial system or, or the kind of stability of money or what have you, that's going to be very, very supportive of gold. I think longer term, it's got to be this store of value role because that, that that's really, if you look at a long-term chart of gold, you know, relative to the S&P 500, it's, it's, it's not super pretty. Um, now, now, if you if you pick some spots, like if you go from 2000, um, I, you know, you, gold outperforms, but for most spots, you know, for the super long-term, um, gold isn't, isn't necessarily going to be the one that's driving your portfolio forward. Um, at least, unless you know history can change. That that is that is something uh, that, that we can see. Um, moving on from from gold, we we mentioned Bitcoin briefly. One of the big things we we hear about Bitcoin is this idea that, that it's digital gold. Even Charlie Munger yesterday at his Daily Journal uh, meeting was talking about the idea that, that that Bitcoin is digital gold, making that comparison. How do you compare and contrast Bitcoin and gold in your mind? Uh, I mean, obviously, gold has that physical quality and that. You know, jewelry, you know, industrial uses. Bitcoin does not. Um, but there is a, and I guess one one interesting thing is, you know, I think we were talking about just gold. You know, tends to be more of a fear gauge. There is a optimistic look at Bitcoin um, that hey, it's it's going to to change things. Both are kind of an alternative to fiat currency, and both kind of have that limited supply. Um, there is the the hope that Bitcoin can be used as a real currency to transact in, things like that. So there are a lot of parallels. They're, they're definitely different, um, but there is an element of, hey, this is an alternative to, you know, standard, uh, the way things are standardly done that I think is appealing to a lot of people on to both of those. I, I think there's actually, it's interesting, right? I think there's actually a little bit of a fallacy about, about both gold and Bitcoin in two different ways. So you think about crypto assets, 
number one, you can physically possess them, right? You can you can put it on a USB dongle and physically possess that asset, right? So th there is a way for that security. And the other thing too is people talk about with gold, right? And it is very appealing is the idea that you can physically possess it. Most investors don't. They, they either invest in a gold miner or they buy some ETF or some other um, exchange traded um, <clears throat> asset to, to possess that gold, to be exposed to gold. But the gold is sitting somewhere else and they're paying somebody part part of their um, their asset base to hold it for them, right? So there's this interesting kind of a dichotomy um, where both are true and both are also false, right? They matter, but they also don't matter, right? Because they affect the perception, but neither is really true in the reality of most people treat treat those assets. And then I think the other part of it too is the scarcity. Um, it's almost kind of a fallacy, right? Because yeah, Bitcoin. It has a cap, right? There's a certain amount of Bitcoin that will be mined. Um, but there are, you have Ethereum, that's is, is pretty popular. You have other crypto assets. And a lot of those other crypto assets, people are working on, on some of those problems to make it more utility, right? Or to, to make it, to give it more utility in terms of supporting more transactions, to make it easier for people to use for some of of those things, right? But it's it's human nature, right? So um, <laughs> it's that's the interesting thing is that there are always um, these these fallacies that get baked into uh, just about anything that we we can throw money at. Yeah, the real interesting thing for me, obviously, it's just the time frame, right? For Bitcoin, the original Bitcoin white paper, August eighteenth, two thousand eight. When we're talking about gold usage, we're talking about three thousand BC, the Sumer civilization. So very different. Time scales. That said, I, I do I do see some similar comparisons. We, we talked about how gold has these characteristics that, that were attractive to us. So you know it's pretty. Um, it doesn't it doesn't um, tarnish like silver. It's very malleable. You can form it into coins and all those sorts of things. So gold had these characteristics that were uh, kind of very useful for an application in the real world for a kind of currency and all those sorts of things. Um, even though it wasn't used for currency for a long time, and you could say the same thing about Bitcoin. I think one of the big Criticisms of Bitcoin is that you know uh, it's very volatile, so it can't be used as a currency. There's also criticisms about um, about energy usage, um, but it does have some of these characteristics that you could say in a digital world it, it would ha it would have value. So so the idea of the decentralization, there is no central character controlling Bitcoin. That we don't even know who the founder of Bitcoin is. Like that is that is uh, you know that that a decentralization uh, idea um, um, be able to maintain authenticity. Um, I think is valuable from from Bitcoin's. Um, perspective, uh, easy transferability, digital nature, all those sorts of things. You can tell us, you can explain some of the characteristics uh, as to why Bitcoin uh, uh, might be something that has value. But as Jason said, there's a sea of other uh, of other cryptocurrencies competing to, to kind of be in this space. Gold has risen to the market, you know, to the, to the top of the role that it plays over thousands of years. We have a N equals 12 for Bitcoin. So really a small sample size to see what, what things become in the future. Um, but time will tell. Both of you own Bitcoin. How do you think about Bitcoin in your personal portfolio? Sure, I can. I can start. So I I started buying in the spring of 2020, and at, at first it was just, it was about one percent of my portfolio. Um, I just wanted it as a diversifier. I thought, look, if I, I mean, I know now a lot of uh, a lot of companies are owning Bitcoin on their on their balance sheets, but but basically I was like, look, it's a, the stock market's here. I want some diversification that I can't get through like a Vanguard index fund so much. But over time, what I've seen is I've kind of um, 
been buying the bull case more and more as there's been adoption in the financial industry where you get the squares and the PayPals and the the large banks, you know, supporting it to some extent. Now, whether whether transactions will happen, whether there, there's a lot of optionality that I can't predict, but I feel like, you know, it, to me, it's kind of like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods. Bear with me. Um, they both kind of, it's a new market where people have to adopt plant-based meat or people have to adopt a cryptocurrency. And so then you need distribution and, and popularity there. But then you also have for Bitcoin, you're competing with Ethereum and all the others. And with, you know, you, with, you know, Beyond Meat or, or Impossible Foods, you're also competing with other pr providers. Bitcoin, um, I, I can't remember the percentage at this point. It's like 70, 80 percent of the, the cryptocurrency market. So it's it's definitely the the first mover kind of thing. And it's it's getting that. And then what remains to be seen is, you know, 20 years from now, is it like gold where it's just staying around? Like you said, once we get to N equals 32 versus N equals 12, what what's going on? N equals 112. Does it stick around? But to me, there's, you know, it's hard to value because there's no earnings. There's, no, there's nothing to really put it against so much. You can compare it to that market cap of gold. So, um, you know, it's less than 10% of the gold market cap. But I think there's there's an upside potential there, an optionality there that I'm also excited about. Yeah, for for me, it was a combination of things. Um, no, number one, as time has gone by, my my exposure to equities as a portion of my net wealth has grown and grown and grown. And I'm still relatively young. I'm still measuring most of my financial goals in decades, not years. So that exposure is gonna is gonna stay relatively high as it as it should to get the best returns over time. But I've also seen a lot of very smart people who I respect um, start to change their perception on crypto assets as as something that should prove viable o over time. We've seen a, tr a tremendous number of businesses become more and more involved in allowing people to transact with crypto assets, companies holding crypto assets on their on their books as, a, as, as an investment. And I've I've realized that it do, this doesn't invalidate the the idea of how you value because I've used the same here's why I don't own Bitcoin argument um, as I've used for gold and that's it it doesn't generate cash flows so it makes it hard to value and its utility value is very 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 low right in terms of its true utility purpose um, is very very low and that's and that's true. But I also think I've come to realize that that's not the best way to think about valuing this as an asset and understanding what its role is. So I've taken a very small exposure. I mean, it's less than it's less. It's about a tenth of a percent of 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 my equity portfolio, right? So it's it's one of those things where I'm not taking on any meaningful long term risk um, if Bitcoin does fall by the wayside. But what it's done, something I've learned that's that's helpful for me is because I have innate human biases, just like everybody else. I've, I've learned that if somebody I respect a lot and I value their ability to pick stocks or to make wise investment decisions, says, hey, this is a great idea. And my knee-jerk reaction is, yeah, that's dumb. Um, it's probably my biases that are speaking up more than their lack of ability to pick something good, right? So I think this is a case where by taking a very small stake, 
It gives me more skin in the game. And that's going to help reset my mental framework about how I think about crypto assets and their role as a store of value. Because I think over time, that's what's going to play out is crypto assets are going to be a role for a store of value. I don't think there's ever going to be massive utility um, value in terms of conducting transactions um, because they're going to remain volatile, right? And at the end of the day, currency is something that people can predict the value and holds its value and it's stable and you can count on the value. And if, 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 if it's kind of like a worst case scenario for crypto as an investment, if it ever becomes that stable value thing, well, yeah, guess what? It's now it's a currency and it's not an investment. So I'm just interested to see where, where that lands. But I think the big purpose is probably going to remain a store of value. And I'm just learning at this point. Yeah, my, my current. So I don't currently own a, a cryptocurrency, but it is a space I, I'm interested in learning. And I do think it's going to persist just because it survived the first crash. I think a lot of people a few years ago, uh, when Bitcoin made its first run up close to $20,000 and then fell down significantly, a lot of people, a lot of people thought, thought Bitcoin you know, was something that was, that was going to kind of fade into obscurity. If you look over the, the past several years, obviously this drumbeat is continuing to build, as Anand mentioned, Square and PayPal, you know, adding ability to purchase it over the past year. Um, yeah, you mentioned, um, Jason, one of the things I thought was interesting, there's this quote from Peter Thiel that I think maybe ties in with, with something you said a second ago, and it's about Bitcoin that I, I think maybe we get your thoughts on it. He said, the, the one asset I most strongly believe in, he said, this is on a podcast at the end of January, he said, the one asset I most strongly believe in as an investor, you often want to find things that are so stupid that other investors are embarrassed to own them. The FANG stocks were an instance of a stupid asset class. Jim Cramer came up with a FANG acronym on Mad Money in 2014, and if you just followed his advice, you would have made 8x your money in the last six years and done better than most in venture capital. My candidate for the investment that is so big and so stupid that professional money managers are embarrassed to do it because it suggests they're not doing enough work is to just buy Bitcoin, which I think is interesting. Ties in exactly with what, what Jason was saying uh, of these people that you know you very much respect, uh, um, you know, saying that the case for, for this company or, or this, this asset in, in this case um, it's just being underappreciated by by the market, probably just because it's so different. It's so different that how do you pitch this if you're if you're after a pitch it to an investment committee or, or those sorts of things? And, and this is one of these areas where you know, as an individual investor, you don't have that risk. You can put 0.1 percent of your portfolio in it and, and see what happens. Um, and a lot of other folks can't. Now, if the thing becomes mainstream in the future, sooner or later, other folks will uh, put money in that asset. And in theory, if you think Bitcoin Bitcoin is going to you know go move significantly higher from here and become more relevant, that that is in theory what you think will happen. Yeah, I think. It's it's it sounds kind of like like a rule breaking investment, right? So you think about something that's very very misunderstood, um, mispriced, considered to be wildly overvalued. Like I mean, this checks a lot. So it's not just Peter Thiel, um, but uh, David Gardner, right? Some of some of the same things he talks about, and and um, Tom as well. Like in terms of just thinking beyond the traditional ways that we measure something's value. But that's that's it. I think it's funny that until said that recently, right? That's not something he said in January. Like, yeah, he didn't January. say that yeah. two years ago. He said that when Bitcoin was, you know, was a five-digit price. So um, that's really important important to remember. Um, but that's the key, right? So we think about where this is as an asset class, and this is one of the things that's exciting to me is that w business that are that are involved in this are they're outliers still, right? They're still they're still outliers. It's not mainstream. You know, every you were talking about it, Nick. The ratio—it's not. This is not one to one. The people on f uh, finance Twitter that are talking about it that own it. You know, it's it's a bare fraction.
Yep. So, so one last thing on Bitcoin before I want to discuss one other little uh, uh, emerging niche in this kind of alternative asset class. One, one last thing on Bitcoin. So we, we talk about Bitcoin as folks think of it as digital gold. We talked earlier about this idea that the role of gold in a portfolio is to be a non-correlated asset in, in times where stock market moves, it's going to you know, reduce volatility in your portfolio. Do you think Bitcoin plays that same role? Is Bitcoin non-correlated in, in a similar way to gold? Or are they substitutes for each other in a portfolio? I, I personally think they're, they're different, right? At whether, um, and Jason, I know you, you had some good thoughts on whether it's truly non-correlated or not. To me, it's different enough where I I like having a little little bit of it. I don't own any gold. Um, I've thought about just like Nick, um, <laughs> I think it would be cool to have a gold bar or two. Uh, I don't, so don't come and rob my house. Um, all you'll get some bad furniture. Um, but but I do think that Bitcoin has some some properties that you know that are another asset class, just like owning a house is another asset class. Now, I put a lot more into my house than than into Bitcoin. Um, but um, and, and I also think that on the chance that um, Bitcoin, you know, to that humility thing of buying some because so many smart people are interested in it when there's a, you know, a 10x or whatever ability to go up versus the downside of 1x or 100 percent. There's also that where there, there's learning, there's the potential for upside. And I think there's some diversification where, you know, there have definitely been days in the last month where I've enjoyed looking at Bitcoin go up while some of my other stuff, some of my stocks go down and it, it's helped me emotionally to, to keep things in perspective. Yeah. I, I think, I think again, the answer is to TBD here, right. To, to a large extent as, as Anna was saying, we don't completely know, but I will say this, I expect um, if interest in crypto assets continues to grow and it becomes more mainstream, and I think it's probably going to, I think we're going to see it become more mainstream. I think that probably is bad for, for gold um, because there is certainly going to be a large subset of, of people that consider gold an important asset class that, that, that won't. Or maybe people who would eventually consider gold an asset class, younger investors who, are, who are, would, would consider that to be uh, more of a meaningful thing they would want to own are going to consider Bitcoin um, maybe a better a better alternative. Okay, so so moving on with Bitcoin, excuse me, moving on uh, from Bitcoin, another alternative asset class that that's really gotten a lot of attention over the the past years is collectibles, artwork, uh, I think sneakers, uh, um, those sorts of things, even NBA Top Shot. So gifts, highlights, um, uh, digital digital sports cards um, have gotten lots of attention. Over the past year, what do y'all make of these trends? Blockchain digital sports cards, by the way. Blockchain. That's true. Got to remember. Got to remember the blockchain. What What are your thoughts on this? These kind of emerging. I don't know if you call them asset classes or, or fads or what what have you. I mean, listen. I've I've gotten into baking during the pandemic. All right, <laughs> that's that's one thing. It's like people have time, right? I think there's 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 partly a reason why you know you've got all these different things popping up, but. But also, I mean, to be serious, it's it's another asset class, but it's it, it gets away from the meat and potatoes. It's look, if you haven't had your emergency fund set up, if you're not maxing out your 401k match and, you know, good into index funds or a, or a bunch of stocks, you know, you need to do that first, you know, save up for a first home type of thing. Um, going in and trying to figure out 
the you know whether you can buy the royalty um you know royalty streams of different music artists or buying different um you know uh, masterworks the the arts art things or an nba card it's like hey if you enjoy it and just kind of want to dabble that's one thing um but but i'll warn you the a couple things to keep in mind are one the fees um i looked briefly into masterworks and it's almost hedge fund pricing it's one and a half percent a year and then 20 percent of the profits um and then the other thing is well do you have a a, a an advantage on on people people saw that with sports gambling where you had a few people who were really really good and then the rest of the people losing a lot of money um so as a true investment versus kind of a hobby or something fun to do and to bet on some of your favorite artists or or you know music or or um you know artwork is one thing um but yeah and then the other thing is look these are these are newer things that aren't followed as much if you're buying stock in a major blue chip company you've got a lot of analysts out there giving you their work for free um you know you can follow fintwit that kind of thing where you can you know the sec documents are pretty standardized here there's a lot of gotchas that even if you're right you might have missed something basic that that you just didn't understand in the apparatus yeah, I think the the other risk here is again we're talking about so like anything where you're just buying a physical item, you're you're number one like Anam was saying, you know, what's your competitive advantage? What 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 makes you better at or the person you're working with if you do like a masterworks? What's the advantage they have of getting the best price and then holding that asset to be able to to generate a return, right? So that's so you have to understand that number one, and then follow the money. Always, always follow the money with this kind of stuff, right? What Nick, Nick asked when we were talking about this before the show, why is this available to me, right? Why is this even a thing? Um, and then you start pairing these things back and you look at how much the fees are. And this is something I found with looking at the, the crowdfunded real estate um, market, which has just absolutely exploded over the past few years is sadly a lot of times the operators that offer things to non-accredited investors um, are the ones that have some of the most egregious fees because they can stuff them in their SEC filings that non-accredited investors, frankly, don't read. And then the offerings that they do for accredited investors that don't actually, that have a lower threshold for SEC scrutiny um, tend to be investors who are just a little a little more, frankly, a little more advanced. Um, and dig into the offering sheets that they write and, and understand the deals a little bit better and often end up getting the better deals with lower fees, right? So you need to understand that and you need to understand what is the risk. So this last thing I'll say about this, the way I think about allocating my family's cash flows is I'm, I'm a diver, a certified dive master. And as part of our first responder training, the first thing that we was stressed in every aspect of it was save yourself first, right? You're not doing anybody any favors if you put yourself at risk by trying to save somebody. Then you end up with two people in the hospital or three people or you know, two dead people instead of, you know, whatever. You get the point. And I think when it comes to thinking about our personal finance, we have to do the same thing. Save yourself first. And saving yourself means, like Anand said, cash in the bank in case you, you lose your job or you break a leg or you have to buy a new car or maxing out that 401k. Then you max out your Roth, Right. And within that, you think about the asset allocation, right? You think about that asset allocation piece, but then the save yourself first is, are you risking assets that you can't necessarily afford to lose 
trying to capture some unpredictable return that may or may not be there. And that's that's kind of how I think about it. So that puts those things way down the list for me. Yeah, I think for me on, on these asset classes, like if you're someone who like loves art and goes to like the the like, you know, art festival and like buys a piece of art every year, like that's the type of like art investing I, I might be interested in. If that's something you're, like you're really into and you do it all the time or you're like you're always buying baseball cards or whatever, like when things become like a fad and like we're talking about it on a podcast like this where it becomes popular enough to where it's in these conversations, that's the time when the people who've been doing it the whole time are probably, you know, selling or, or taking some profits and and things like that. These are these are areas that like if I'm super into it and it's a hobby for me, I pay attention to and I own the actual things. Uh, but I think in general, as I've looked into some of these these different opportunities, uh, that they, they seem a little bit uh, uh, not ideal uh, for me. So it's not something I'd want to invest in. Just like you know, we talked about Bitcoin earlier. You know, if I were someone who was going to go out and buy Bitcoin, I want to own Bitcoin. I don't want to own any of these Bitcoin ETFs. I, I don't think having you know a middleman involved in some of this stuff is necessarily the healthiest uh, the healthiest thing. And I think if you look at performance, there have been some studies that have gone out of like the people who have like been the best performing art investors. We talked about Masterworks earlier. There are people who are just like buying all the time, and then by accident they have some huge, massive winners. Right? This is how ten- people tend to have success in these areas. I, I think for most people, you can do just fine owning the S and P. You don't have to own any of these, uh, any of these asset uh, classes to have success as an investor, which I, I think is an important takeaway. Like, what what advice do you have, kind of going away, for investors who are thinking about investing in these types of kind of non traditional alternative asset classes? What should they do? What should they avoid? Jason, I think first of all, you have to understand what function they serve, right? What 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 can they? What can they? What are they most likely to deliver to you? Right. And if the answer is, I don't know, then it's probably an asset class to be avoided. Right. Now, the flip side of that is you think about real estate, crowdfunded real estate. What is it most likely to deliver in those cases? Often it's income. Right. Some of those are capital returns projects, but often it's income. Well, do you need to own an asset that's going to generate predictable income? Right. So start there and figure out what is it most likely to to generate for you? And is that fit a need for you? Right over whatever period of time you want to be exposed to that asset, I think you have to start. You start and you end there because that's going to help you avo- avoid a lot of mistakes. And that's rule number one, right? For for if you're if you're um, uh, an amateur, which we all, are, unless we're getting paid to manage somebody else's money, we're an amateur. And as Morgan Housel has told us, when it comes to being an amateur of something, avoiding unforced errors is the most important step to to success. That's it. Number one, reduce your unforced errors. Cut your mistakes, and you're going to get better returns. And I think um, position sizing as well, right? Um, anything that's exotic, keep it small. Um, you know, I mentioned that Bitcoin, as I was getting into it, is one percent, which was which was still more than you know I'd, I'd normally put in. I have a very diversified portfolio, but um, you know, it's it's since grown to like five percent. But beyond beyond one to five percent as an initial stake, because at three percent, you've got thirty positions, right? At five percent, you only have twenty positions unless you're indexed well. Um, and the more exotic, the less you should be putting in. And and also making sure that you're that there isn't any unlimited downside things. You know, as as people found out in the stock market, you know, like things like naked shorting and things like that. Some of those things just stay away completely. Um, but as long as it's limited downside risk keeping it at a very small percentage of your portfolio. And hey, if you get lucky, not getting too overconfident and putting more and more in um, to, to, you know, where where it's 
tuning out your stocks and things like that. Awesome. Well, y'all, this has been a great discussion. Thank you so much uh, uh, for joining me. Anand, I, I can't wait to have you back on, on the podcast uh, again sometime soon. Uh, uh, thanks for joining me. Me too. It's been fun. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks or cryptocurrencies discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show, for Anand Chakavalu and Jason Hall. I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool On.